Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for being listeners of Web3 with me. I want to take a few seconds to tell you about my exciting new B2B offering. It is the mission here to educate. I sincerely believe Web3 can make the world better for more people. Businesses shouldn't be left out, though, so I've launched The Web3 Coach. It's a bespoke education experience designed to help your team understand how Web3 affects your particular industry or company and identify opportunities unique to Web3. Whether you have a law or accounting firm with a growing number of clients participating in Web3 through crypto and NFTs, or you're a real estate syndicate looking for different ways to raise money, or teams just of fast-growing Web3 companies who want to understand your customers and your new teammates, I make sure you can talk the talk and leave feeling more confident about this crazy new world. Please take a minute to check out my website at theweb3coach.xyz. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. My guest today is Giuseppe Stutto. He is the first U.S.-born member of his family who are all from Italy. He's a deep technical thinker who does a great job of using analogies to explain his outlook on investing and Web3 generally. He founded his first company fresh out of college and sold it to DraftKings a few years later. After seeing them through an IPO, Giuseppe started angel investing and ultimately partnered up to form 186 Ventures, which is where he is now as managing partner. He plays on his unique technical experience as a founder to help provide a value add to all his portfolio companies. We go deep on the potential for Web3 infrastructure and developer tools. LFG baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Giuseppe. Thanks for having me, Zach, and, and happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, we are recording this uh, right before my 36th birthday. So uh, yeah, we're, we're super close. I'm, I'm realizing how old I am. <laughs> uh, we're, 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 all, we're all only getting younger, is what yeah. I always say. We're younger at heart, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what matters. Well, cool. This was honestly like one of the coolest uh, episodes, uh, at least an intros that I ever had, right? Having introed uh, to you through uh, someone else and now being able to link up for the podcast. So I'm excited to record with you. You're my first venture capitalist on the episode as well. So, wow. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how I do. Hopefully I <laughs> no pressure, but, man. It's no big yeah, deal. No pressure. No, thanks first. for having me. <laughs> thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun for sure. Awesome, dude. Well, I always like to start with your founding story. So if you want to kind of give uh, the audience a high level over, overview of, you know, who you are and what makes you tick, uh, that would be super helpful. Absolutely. So my, let's start way back. Um, first U.S. generation born in my family um, here in the U.S. Uh, and my most of my family still lives in Italy, actually, and grew up around the Boston area my entire life went to school locally. And then shortly after my undergrad, I founded my first software company uh, in the group video conferencing space. So the company was called FAM and we built multi-party video infrastructure, but also the consumer facing component of it uh, that effectively transformed any group messaging experience. So think group iMessage chats into group FaceTimes. Uh, and this was a bit unprecedented at the time. Not many of the OEMs had figured out how to do this. this before there was any native group FaceTime available on the um, you know, iPhone operating system, for example. Built this company over the course of uh, five years, 23, late 2013 to Q2 of 2018, um, to, to north of 7 million users, uh, the, the, the product that is. 
And then we sold the company to DraftKings, uh, where I played a role. And this was before they were doing any of the uh, online betting stuff, um, and obviously before their IPO. And I played roles on the product team and strategy team while at DraftKings. And it was uh, a phenomenal time. I uh, met my co-founder on 186 Ventures while at DraftKings, uh, Julian. He was on the Strategic Ventures team, and we collaborated on various projects. But then we also, first we became really good friends. And then going into Jan of 2019, we started to angel invest in early stage tech companies together. So we wrote about 31 angel investments over the course of about two and a half to three years. So from you know, Jan 2019 to, you know, spring of 21 or so. And then the, I, I, I departed DraftKings to go um, you know, be chief operating officer of one of our early angel investments in neural interface space, a company called Pison Technology. And then following that, Julian and I, in, in spring of 21, we both came to um, similar inflection points and we said, hey, we are adding a lot of value to the companies we're angel investors in. And unfortunately, the amount of dedicated institutional support that is offered to founders beyond the capital that is deployed is lackluster at best. So this is the problem that we're solving at 186 Ventures. So we started to raise our first fund in July of 2021. We set out to raise 30 million. We were able to hit that and more. We closed the fund toward the end of 21, total of 37 million. Uh, we invest across Web3, crypto, FinTech, future of work, media and entertainment and healthcare primarily. And uh, I always say our strategy is to cover multiple industries, but our edge is we were founders and operators. We've been there, we've done that, we've failed a ton. And we think that our combination of operator, founder, know-how and the eclectic networks that we've been fortunate to build up over the years is very value added to early stage founders. Uh, average checks being anywhere from a quarter million to a million and a half dollars. We've done about 11 investments out of this fund uh, since September so far. And it's been a blast. And a lot of my time, I would argue most, the majority of my time, if you look at it, if you look at time as a, a 100 units of time, greater than 50 of those 100 units is spent within the Web3 world. So studying the Web3 economy, how it's developing, how it's not developing, uh, among other things. Nice. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to double click on one thing I said, you know, as most founders have, they have failed a bunch. What are some of your most successful, I will say failures that have kind of taught you life lessons along the way? Oh, well, failure, there's a, there's a spectrum of failure. <laughs> there's failure where things just stop and end, end of business, end of life. <laughs> and then there's failures where you can recover from. So I'll, uh, we'll start with, with one that I think was a healthy, well, they're all healthy failures, but one where it wasn't the end, but it was certainly a failure of sorts, um, was when we launched. So FAM is the byproduct of multiple launches within a company. And um, we launched a multi-party video app within iMessage FAM in December or late November, early December, I think it was early December of twenty. 16, if my memory serves me correctly. And we hit a million users within nine days or so. We were streaming 9 million minutes of video per day. So as you can imagine, we were only a team of five at the time. And, you know, just everything was breaking. And on top of it, and we, we pride ourselves on this, but on top of it, the customer support in the app was when you clicked on support because you needed an iPhone to use the app. So the support was you would create a group chat with me and my two co-founders. <laughs> so it was it was just complete mayhem, 24-7. We were barely sleeping. Some people so, try to find lines to the founders. This is the only we, line. We gave it to you. Exactly. Right, right. You know, we got this idea from, so my two the two good friends of mine, this is before they started in alchemy. So everyone thinks of, you know, the founders of alchemy as, you know, they are crypto experts for sure. But once upon a time, they were consumer app builders like myself. And I remember uh, they did this with one of their apps back in 2014, 15. And we kind of borrowed the idea from them. We loved it. But anyways, the failure though was that um, two weeks into launch, we, we our, our um, debit cards were declining, company debit cards, because the server uh, fees basically bankrupted us. 
So we had no money. We had no money left in the bank. And we were actually overdrafted. So we had negative money. And we ended up having to go on an emergency fundraise. Uh, thankfully, we were able to pull it off. Uh, but it was a lot of traveling, particularly for me through the holiday. And, and this is when, when people say, you know, fundraising doesn't happen through the holidays. It's BS. It happens. Because yeah. I know. <laughs> so, um, but, but anyways, that was a failure, though. Because ultimately, if we weren't able to convince investors in a very short period of time that it was worth doubling down on us, we would have been toast, right? So it was a failure of financial management to an extent. I would say it was a good kind. Another failure maybe, um, I would say early on before SMAC, so right in between kind of during my undergrad days and, and kind of shortly after my undergrad days and going into, um, you know, before SMAC, which was FAM in late 2013, I built a series of mobile apps. One of them was one that would, I guess, convert cash transactions into mobile digital transactions. This was in 2011, 2012. So kind of ahead of its time. Yeah, a few years. It was, just, <laughs> it was an epic failure. Just not, it was the, not, the, the, the check-in features didn't work. The payment processing worked one out of 10 times. And it just taught me that you really need to have a high bar of technical acumen to build something that not only users and customers will love, but that will work, right? And that actually is, is something that we we are very biased at at 186 Ventures. We'd like to see some degree of technical acumen on the founding team. Why? Because we just know from experience that you're, you're facing a whole other set of odds if you don't have that internally. Yeah, it's almost like if you have the... Right, so we're in tech, right? Like you're not investing in non-tech companies. So like right. if you have, if you are building a tech product, you need to be able to troubleshoot the tech yourselves and not have to rely on third parties. But also one thing, and I'm just bringing this anecdote out myself, is that timing is important, right? Um, Absolutely. You were building something that people needed, right? You may have felt like you came short on the technical side, but also you were a little early, right? And I'm sure when you're going and investing in your current portfolio of companies and they go and you're like, all right, here's a few lessons for you. You're early to a space. Most of these people are early to a space, but are you too early? And, th- and ask yourself that question in earnest, right? Being early is great. Being way too early is failure, right? I agree. And then also like when you're, when you're going through something like an emergency fundraise, that also can tell that story to your founders that, you know, hey guys, I understand what it's like to be in a bind, right? And so you're able to kind of be an empath in that sense when they're going through, if something comes up that I, I imagine computes a lot cheaper now than it was about eight years ago, but <laughs> it, is. it definitely is much, much different story for sure. <laughs> but yeah, you're able to say, Hey, look, I get you call me. Like I'm going to be here for you. Right. And it's funny because if you listen to VCs on other podcasts on uh, producing other content, I think the picture they want to paint is that they're a value add beyond the money. But I think there are plenty, there's not a lot of evidence of that. No, there isn't. And and actually quite frankly, um, I usually say this out front, uh, but I guess we haven't gotten on that topic. So I'll say it now. And we say this to our founders, whether we, ones that we invest in or ones that we didn't invest in. Ultimately, we don't believe that investors do that much in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't matter who you are. As much as I like to think, I know a thing or two, but as much as I like to think I can add value, the assumption must be that there will be little value added relative to the value created by the founders. You can't compare the two. Oftentimes people like to just look at it in the same wavelength. You just can't. But what investors can do, and this is where I do, this is this is why part of why we founded 186 uh, as a, an institutional fund. Investors can, at certain points along the business life cycle, impact, significantly impact the trajectory of the company. And the probability that non-institutional investors on your cap table do that is much, much lower. Why? Because by definition, they're thinking about you less. If I'm an executive at Coinbase and I have a $10 million side angel fund, true story, 
and I invest in 50 companies out of that or even 20 companies out of that, regardless of how much I like your company, my allegiance is to Coinbase. My fiduciary duty is to my employees at Coinbase. So when shit's hitting the fan there, right, which it happens at every company, getting my attention is just going to be harder. And it doesn't matter what your company is going through. Now, this also plays out with some VCs. I would argue the ones that aren't in it for the right reasons. But this is my full-time job. So the chances that if you really need me, you, get, you, you need to get in contact with me, not only will I make the time, I have to make the time because my fiduciary duty is to my investors who I, who I represent and invested their money into your company, right? Yeah. So it's really important to think about that too. So th- there is some value add, but it, it needs to be looked at in a different way, I think. Yeah, so take notes, founders, when you're comparing strategics versus traditional VCs and institutions, the VCs and institutions do have that fiduciary obligation to you directly, whereas a strategic investment fund, they are rather having their own obligations to their own company. Um, there is a lot of great companies that have come from strategic investments. It's not to say Absolutely. that it doesn't work, but it's just what value are you looking for here? If you're looking for just capital, that's great. And maybe you're building in a similar industry where they can offer expertise. But if you're looking for someone who's always going to be on and always be there for you, maybe it's better to go the traditional kind of VC institutional route. Right. Uh, well, cool. Um, I know that you had kind of explained that you're spending a good 50% of your time uh, in the Web3 space. Um, I also want to know, like, when was that kind of Web3 inflection point for you? I imagine you didn't just think of it at the end of last year. Uh, was there like a personal uh, experience that you had that was involved in either crypto or some other form of Web3? Sure. Uh, certainly. Certainly. Um, uh, in terms of their personal impact wise. So uh, the way that we take a step back, the way that we think about, or I think about, I'll just speak for myself, the way that I think about Web3 is that it's an approach to building technology. It's an approach to building business models. It's a philosophy in some cases, depending on who you speak with. And um, we look at it as an enabling technology or and or an enabling business model or enhancement to traditional business models. Now, with that said, the way that I came into, well, first was like probably like everyone else or the majority of people where I bought my first Bitcoin and Ethereum circa 2016 and then i started to follow it and then i made all the wrong trading decisions talk about a failure every single wrong decision i've made them when it comes to trading this is why i like to invest in illiquid assets not liquid assets in some cases and um going so but but i would say i wasn't convinced going into 2017 or in eight or going into 2018 that it would be an enduring um technology and approach i wasn't i was wrong but i wasn't and i would say what was and at the time what was going on with me personally i was still building my company fam or i was just exiting it i was ramping up into DraftKings. with at the time there was no relation to the web3 world uh so obviously that like my focus wasn't there but i also gave a lot of weight which a lot of good you know people are doing even today i gave a lot of weight to the talent that was pouring in and out of the space i will say in 2018 boy a lot of people fled a lot of really talented builders not even investors but builders fled so that really turned me off of it and i also just i didn't i saw a lot of large corporates you know building blockchain technology thinking about in theory how a decentralized set of infrastructure could enhance their offering but I, I didn't see enough implementation i didn't see enough adoption so i just didn't believe it and then i would say going into 2020 i would say a few things started to happen um mid 2020 let's call it uh angel investing you just see more and more talent focusing in on it so i'm like huh that's an interesting signal uh relative to prior time periods then i started to see peers of mine that have built some of the you know most notably well-known uh, companies in the Web3 ecosystem today hit their stride. And I saw their companies gain traction. Interesting, real adoption. And then, um, and then of course, just the floodgates started to open in terms of the, the, the applications made a lot of sense. Where, where we now, and this kind of segues into, I guess, uh, so that's kind of how I started to become interested in it, was more organic through use cases. Started to see financial services benefit 
from adopting various forms of, of Web3 technology or Web3 approaches to building technology. And I started to really think about how a lot of the problems that we're facing as a global economy, one of them being inadequate access to credit for, for small businesses that otherwise should qualify for it. So not small businesses that are getting off the ground or don't have or aren't profitable, but ones that have a track record of 10, 20, 30 years of profit still have a tough time qualifying for ample amount of credit relative to the lar- their larger business counterparts. That's a problem. I mean, if we're going to scale this world, we, we can't leave behind small businesses. Uh, we just can't. And there's going to be too much innovation lost, too much value creation lost. And it's just not the right thing to do. Now, that is one thing that a Web3 enabled approach to infrastructure can be pretty you know, uh, handy for uh, or be helpful toward, I should say. So that would say, so kind of 2021 is when I really started to see that, wow, now's the time where there's enough capital, enough talent, and enough use cases worth focusing on all of this. A lot of it is centered around financial services. Of course, this goes beyond fintech, um, but that's probably where we're going to see the most value realized and value creation over the next two to three years. Yeah, that's kind of where it always starts, I feel like, when when you're seeing a new technology adoption. That's where the money is, right? The money is where the money is, uh, which is finance. And, you know, it sounds like when you started to see that the the dollars at work starting to buy into this and you started to see use cases get validated, I think 2020 was DeFi summer, right? Yeah. Um, That was obviously a lot of speculation, but nonetheless, it was the one of the first valid use cases um, other than, you know, things that had not worked in the past. Uh, it was also when NFTs first started to become a thing. Um, and they were obviously really hit their stride in 2021, but it was, it was the time when the use cases were starting to pile up and you were approaching it like an investor at that point. It sounded like you were, you're building your thesis. You had a very organized right. thesis as to like, okay, I see validation. Now I'm going to start taking a little bit more of an interest. So when you did start to take an interest, coming from a technical background, right? And being interested in those tons of technical founders. Um, what kinds of projects were you looking at specifically? Were you looking at more of the tech heavy stuff? Um, and then I guess, how has that changed now that you have 186? Sure. Is specific to Web3 or just in general? Uh, specific to Web3. Yeah. I would say, well, certainly looking at, we, we, we've done both consumer and enterprise related um, investments that have a a significant Web3 component. But I would say one of the the biggest eye-opening ones were were ones that actually played on the side of regulation. What do I mean by that? So we wrote a small angel, we didn't have the fund at the time, but we did write a small angel check into Chainalysis, for example, right? So the more regulation, the better for Chainalysis. And, and I'll get to why we, we, we look at regulation. Uh, we also then, this is in the fund, a company called Ponto. So they're building infrastructure, like enterprise grade, high regulatory grade infrastructure for banks, for large, other large institutions that are financial in nature uh, to be able to have secure compliant asset custody and payment transfer. Right. And they're taking a super regulation friendly approach where the first year of the company was based, among other things, basically about building up its IP from a regulatory and permitting standpoint, licenses and all that. And we we look at that and we've been looking at that, thankfully, uh, that the Web3 world in that way for two or three years now, uh, even before the fund started. Why? Because we knew that to jumpstart an economy, a global economy and an ecosystem, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Now, I understand that there, there is certainly not to get philosophical, but there is a there are those that this completely dismiss, absolutely dismiss centralization. But the reality is the financial ecosystem that we've built up in a traditional finance world wasn't an accident. Right. It just wasn't. There were reasons why things were done. And we're actually seeing that right now play out over the last 90 days within the crypto world. You have retail investors losing their shirts 
because there was a lack of regulation over what certain institutions can or cannot do. It's just today's world, you need it, you need it. Um, and so we felt, we knew that this was gonna be very important to be able to kind of jumpstart a scaled uh, global economy. So we focused on a lot of companies that were you know, doing things like that. And then on the other end, we like to look at the world in, in terms of, you know, again, if we're gonna build a global economy, look at what already works in a traditional world, and it's literally playing out in a decentralized world. Uh, where you have three layers. You have your execution, your settlement, and your data layer. It's just the proper way to build out uh, financial infrastructure. And it is now happening. It's happening, though, with a decentralized flavor, right? Which I do agree is the right way to go because with the right combination of centralized controls and 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 and. and and mentality, like running a business, just do it the way it works. It's okay to be a little centralized on that end. Now, I understand where from a, secure, a technical security standpoint, maybe it isn't smart for one company to own data, govern data. That stuff makes a lot of sense. I agree with that. That's playing out now in the Web3 world. I do think that we're going to have a much better financial system where you have a third independent party that, ha- that, that, that maintains and governs data in a totally decentralized manner. It's gonna make it cheaper, it's gonna make it safer, that makes a lot of sense. So things like that. But if you think about it, the use case of what that data will serve mm-hmm. is going to be the same exact, to an extent, to what happens in the traditional finance world. It's still gonna be hedge funds using it, it's still gonna be centralized financial institutions accessing it, but it's just that the technology is going to be built in a fundamentally different way where everyone kind of has read and write access to so to speak to the data right it's not just owned by you know one institution yeah that's interesting i mean it's i think when you first get into this space and you hear decentralization um it is it's a passion driver right and people get it and and I, I think that, you know, ultimately what happens is whenever something blows up like this, then at some point you get a reality check. We've had a few reality checks. Right. And then you start to, to look at, you know, all right, like how what are the real world applications here? Like we're not just going to decentralize everything. Banks are not just going to disappear overnight. Like this is just not going to happen. So it sounds like you're taking a practical approach. And another analogy that it sounds like is a lot of your focus is on kind of like the the picks and shovels of the industry as opposed Absolutely. to like the the darlings, right? As opposed to trying to find the prettiest one, the prettiest uh, company to invest in. You're looking at like, They're tempting. Hey, they're tempting. tempting. They are <laughs> tempting. And look, people will make a lot of money on them. But the question is, what has staying power, right? What's going to be around for the long term and what's going to enable all these darlings to operate nicely? And that is this like infrastructure kind of approach. So what is it about, uh, you know, 186 now that you are focusing on? I know that there's a there's been I've seen uh, some information on infrastructure and on uh, interoperability. Um, What is it that you're really, really keen on at 186 right now in in your portfolio? Yeah. I would say uh, I'll spend 30 seconds on just how we canvas the Web3 space, regardless of what we are currently interested in. And then I'll home in on what we like. Um, so we there's really maybe five, but we'll just say kind of four quadrants. One is just digital asset or asset innovation. So moving from fiat to digital stores of value. Bitcoin, Ethereum, the ship sailed on a lot of that, although there will be novel ones that come up. And then, of course, the liquidity solutions that support the access and in, in usage of those assets. So exchanges, market makers, and so on. Boats really sailed on a lot of this. I think there's a, lot, a tremendous opportunity in a lot of, let's say, emerging markets to, to find opportunities with outsized value within that. But in developed economies, like let's say the US and so on, ships kind of sailed there. Um, the second quadrant is just decentralized finance, both on the enterprise and consumer side. Third, which we really don't have a solid enough thesis yet at, at our firm, although we, we do recognize it and acknowledge that it, it, it is it is big and will be continuing to get bigger, but kind of fractionalization or, or ownership of fractionalized data, let's say. 
Um, so let's say NFTs, for example, right? Everyone thinks of NFTs as, as pictures, but the reality is they represent ownership of your own data. Uh, in that case, the data represents an image, but the data can represent all sorts of things. It can represent the string, uh, meaning the characters and letters and numbers and so on. Um, then, uh, so there you have just, you know, whether it be your, the, the actual NFTs themselves or games that are being built on them and so on, both enterprise and consumer. And then the fourth is what you were just describing, which is like picks and shovels, developer tools, infrastructure. So examples of that the alchemies of the world, the open zeppelins of the world, things like that. Now, where we are currently focusing a lot of our time and energy on is the infrastructure that supports asset custody, payment processing, reduction of gas or reduction of fees, right? As much as we like to think that transacting on the blockchain is cheaper than the centralized world, I, I actually... I don't even know where that comes from. It's right? slower it's, and more expensive. It's unbelievable, <laughs> actually. I know you can make a case for it, but at scale, you can't even compare. So anyways, reduction of fees, um, enhancing developer tools, like the Infurers of the world, the Alcas of the world, like they, 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 they are building the beginning of really important infrastructure for developers, but we have a long way to go because the at its core when and this doesn't go for every application but when you're dealing with smart contracts available they're gonna um uh, smart contracts that are going to be facilitating in a you know transfer of you know hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of dollars worth of transfer you really got to make sure you're building those in a tight-knit manner and we don't have sophisticated enough developer tools to be able to support that. Like right now, how does it work? You like, there might be some resources online, <laughs> whatever. You might have some developer tools that guide you kind yeah, of, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, like there's a company called Reach, Boston yeah. based. They do a good job of this where they try to kind of, you know, in your compiling um, phase, um, they will call out vulnerabilities in your smart contract code. But ultimately you then have to go to a third party auditor whether it be trail of bits or whether it be a spear bit, whatever. And then you get to wait for that. You get in line. They then audit it. They give you a report. There's a lot of back and forth. It's very manual. A lot of people just won't wait for that, which is why you, you have all these crazy vulnerabilities that result in hundreds of millions of dollars in lost value. The analogy I like to give is, the um and this is a little far-fetched so bear with me here but would you you know would you let an inexperienced developer which is what happens today would you let an inexperienced developer deploy highly algorithmic um supported uh technology at a bank that handles billions and billions or trillions of dollars worth of transfer the answer is no we're currently doing that in the web3 world that's fine right people are learning but we need to understand that it's not something you can just spin up like a mobile application that allows people to um, exchange text messages, right? So that's why infrastructure matters right now, because without it, I don't think we're going to see the scale that we need to see in order to impact this planet as much as we need to with Web3. I think on a personal level, the thing that I think of there is like, just how nervous I still get clicking the button to transfer my assets, <laughs> right? The best are bridges. I mean, you use cross-chain bridges. Uh, I have like one time for Arbitrum. <laughs> oh boy, those are really, I mean. I, like, what is going on here? There's like a, a few pictures on the screen and like, maybe it's working, maybe it's not. <laughs> it's a black box. It's a black, it's black magic, I like to call it. <laughs> Good thing I'm only transferring 0.1 ETH. It's okay if I lose yeah. it, right? Because like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if I was trying to buy anything expensive or trying to spend a lot of money, I would, I would want to talk to somebody or have something that just made me feel more comfortable. I agree. I agree. Yeah, the UX is definitely not where it needs to be. And, and But neither is the infrastructure, right? Neither is the infrastructure. I mean, neither is the services, to be honest. I mean, I think you alluded to this is uh, co smart contract auditing is so it's in its infancy. Uh, oh, yeah, it really of, is. Like we'll, what we need is a lot of the, I think, bigger consultancy firms, the firms that specialize in auditing of other kinds 
to really put their foot in the ground and start to build practices around it so that they can lend their brand behind the smart contract auditing and start building out full practices. I agree with that. I do agree with that. Um, and I think it's going to be, I think both, um, both parties, meaning the actual auditing services and developers have to uh, progress at the same uh, rate. I think right now there's been a tremendous amount of effort, in my opinion, put toward these auditing services, which are incredibly important, the role that they play in, in, in Web3, but not enough emphasis has been put in in pre-baking and the developer tools that are rolled out there and kind of just pre-checking, right? Like there's no, with where AI is, where it is today, and just where, you know, just compute power and all these things that have come together over the last, you know, several years, there's no reason why at the compile state of, of writing code that you really can't call out for some of these things. Now this exists to a degree, but I think it can come, go a much longer way, in my opinion. That's interesting. I'm not entirely familiar with all of the developer tools uh, out there currently. Um, do you have like a good high level explanation for both me and the audience of kind of the current state of these developer tools? What are they focused on? What aren't they focused on? What are the constraints that they're facing? Sure. So um, I guess I'll give two examples. And I haven't messed around with Alchemy in a while, but you know, there's Alchemy where they think of them as, well, this is what they also dub themselves in, in press, but the AWS of crypto. So, you know, with very relatively little code, you're able to spin up uh, a, a suite of node connections to whatever blockchain you're trying to develop on, say on Ethereum, for example. So it makes it, it allows you to focus on the actual application development versus trying to become the ultimate expert of blockchain, like the underlying protocol um, layer, right? Um, so think of it as powering your application on the back end, but not really helping you too much on the front end application, right? So a lot of people have focused on that. Why? Because people were spending weeks or months just figuring out how to deploy an application on the Ethereum protocol. So obviously let's start there. Let's fix that, which is how they started, right? Their story is they, they in building out applications, blockchain applications, they were like, this is crazy. The amount of piping that needs to be built and spun up just to be able to write a line of application code, right? And they found that some of their peers, I think the founding team at Dapper Labs, were like, wow, we could use this. And then that's why they powered Dapper. Now they power who knows what. Uh, they, you know, the lead, they're by far the leader in that space. But then on the other end, so there's those tools exist. I would say what, what's um, called like the IDE, so integrated development environments. Um, they are really early on, right? So the comp in the Web2 world, if you want to write an iPhone application, you need to use Xcode. Xcode is the IDE native to Apple uh, and the Mac OS and the iOS and all that. So um, it basically what it does is it allows you how it's where you write your code. It's where you compile it to see if it works or if there are any bugs or errors, it's what you would use to troubleshoot most of the time and so on. That equivalent for blockchain application development is in its infancy. There's a company called Reach doing it um, fairly well. It's part of their solution. It's not the only thing that they, they, they do, but they're building up their own. And there are some other companies too. But that's also going to be a core part of it, right? You have the back end part of it, which is makes it easy for you to just get to work and build an application. And then you have, you know, the other part of it, which is like, all right, now that we're actually building the application, let's do it. Let's save ourselves as much time as possible. Let's make it as high performing as possible. Let's um, make it as secure as possible. And that's kind of the next state. But we barely have those right now. I would say. So it's it's launch. It if I could simplify it and tell me if I'm being dumb. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, so it's launch is is pretty well covered. Alchemy is the leader in the space to launch an application, whereas I would optimizing that. the application in multiple different ways that we kind of take for granted, maybe in the Web 2 world, we're not there yet when it comes to Web 3. No, we're not. We're not. The book is still being written on it, right? No. Um, because we don't even know how far and how complex some of these applications are going to become, right? The underlying protocols are still being built to an extent. Um, it's like another analogy that I'll give 
imagine being in a pre GUI GUI uh, graphical user interface world, right? So right. pre Windows operating system, but not DOS, like right. Microsoft Windows with not Oregon Trail. Interface. Yeah, right. Not Oregon. Right. No, no, like exactly right. Not the original Oregon Trail. Like before <laughs> Apple came out with the graphical user interface, and then before Windows came out with like we're before that. We we don't even like, we are in like the people like to say we're in the nineties. We're in the nineties from a business development standpoint, from a technology development standpoint. When it comes to developer technology, I'd argue we're in the seventies. Wow. Seriously, I really would. It's that we're like that. I really would argue that yeah. um, because there's just so much more that needs to happen. Um, honestly, so uh, we we need those operating systems to come to life. I, I truly believe that we're going to have. Web three equivalent operating systems. Uh, what they look like, I don't know, but I, we need them because of just right now everything's so fragmented. Um, it's very difficult to even um, kind of think about in a tangible manner when you think about it from a technical sense. Yeah, I'm wondering, and, and again, this is bridging on the extent of my technical knowledge, so feel free to clarify this question a little bit, but. Um, does it make sense for some of the current larger companies that are in the developer tool market um, to be trying to tackle these? Or is it a, we got, we have to wait and see this kind of thing. And, you know, like what, what, what's, what about that? Like, is there, does it make sense for those larger people to be kind of bridging some of their developers over to kind of be the thought leaders, I guess, or the, in the, in this part of the space? It's a very good question. Um, I mean, the jury is still out. It will still be out for, who knows, at least the next five to 10 years plus. Uh, I would say it's definitely worth it. If you're a larger company, um, especially if you offer cloud services, you need you want to be in that game, right? Um, you want to own as much of the developer stack as possible. So how you get there, whether you, I mean, it's a build, buy, or partner type scenario. These larger companies, they don't partner. They either build it or they buy you. So I don't know how they're going to go about it, but certainly, yes. I do absolutely think that some of, and some of these companies are, to my knowledge, should be deploying some engineering bandwidth to solving some of these problems. I do think, though, there's a lot of waiting and seeing because of what I was just alluding to, which is things are so nascent they're so far away from being mass scale ready that it's just very difficult to even have a thesis on this it's just so difficult we can't i mean think about it this way we're talking about a web3 global economy right and we're talking about disrupting lending and all this other stuff and i'll get back to the point imagine you know if someone said to you that recognizing collateral you know, wasn't possible anymore in a traditional finance world. You would think we're in like the 1800s, right? That is the world we live in right now in the Web3 world. We don't, so the point is that there's still a lot of technology that needs to be built that would even make the space big enough and, and tangible enough of an opportunity worth building for some of these companies, which is where on the flip side, why it's a tremendous opportunity to just start building as much as possible because we're literally building the the early low level blocks of an entirely new financial system uh and i would just argue kind of technology economy in many ways so yeah i do think a larger company should go in there. whether they try to get in by buying companies or building it out themselves i don't know i do think that one thing that i i don't ask myself enough and i would argue most don't in the, in the crypto world, which is what makes a lot of builders special. But it's most of the time you can really think of how an existing centralized, super centralized Fortune 500 Web2 company can come in and do it better than someone else, right? Um, and, and that's something that, you know, people need to be very cognizant of, whether it be building a developer tool, whether it be building infrastructure or whatever else. Nothing's stopping them, really. And the, the philosophical rejection of centralization has definitely disappeared over the last 90 days, right, yeah. uh, in my opinion. 
And I think too, um, I was given a presentation earlier today to a, a large uh, company starts with an A, ends with an N. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we were harping on in that whole conversation was that they're like, when I was explaining to them what web two, what web one, what web two, what web three were, um, is that web three is not getting rid of web two. Right. right. It's, it's just an iteration. Right. Just like there's still static web pages out there that you can read. Right. That's Web one. Right. Like oh. they didn't go away. Now you it's just increasing the level with what you can participate in the web or in the Internet. So I think there is a happy medium and we need times like this, these these times for the biddlers, as we say, uh, in the bear market. Right. Where people are building like they're building startups. Uh, I had a lawyer on who helps Web3 companies a while back and he said, it's interesting. In all of 2021, we talked to mostly NFT projects, but then when 2022 hit and things started to get a little bit shakier, now we're only working with Web3 startups because now people are wanting to build businesses. And I think that we are headed in that way. And I love like the way that we're going about this because I think that it's going to make a lot of sense for my closing question, but I don't want to jump the gun. Um, the first thing I've got to ask you that I ask every single episode is how do you define Web3? Read and write, right? I, I, I think it's, it's um, a question of is data owned or not owned by one authority? Is data freely accessible? Um, and so on. That's what I would describe it as. I would say it's, it's a paradigm uh, and a, an approach with which building technology that is premised on there being no one singular owner of data that is used within that technology. Um, that's why in many ways, most of the companies that we talk about and hear about in the Web3 world are really Web 2.5, right? Like they're very centralized. OpenSea is very centralized in the grand scheme of things. Coinbase, FTX, Gemini, they're obviously very centralized. Um, a lot of them are centralized. <laughs> I think they're, they're, you know, Ethereum, very decentralized, right? So it depends, but that's what I, I would describe Web3 as in general. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, cool. I, um, I do always ask the same closing question. I'm really interested for your answer. And I'm gonna give you a little caveat before. So, uh, we have talked about how we are in the 70s in terms of certain areas of developer tools for the Web3 ecosystem. Um, so I want you to, when you answer this question about the future, assume that when you're thinking about the long term, when I'm, I'm talking about five to 10 years from now, let's assume that we are, that five to 10 years is enough time to take us from the 70s to now in terms of developer tools. So I ask you this, where do you see yourself and Web3 in the next six to 12 months? And then for the same, yourself and Web3 in the next five to 10 years? Sure. So I agree with what you just said, by the way. I do think just with Moore's law and the amount of information that's readily available across the board relative to prior decades and so on, that in the next 10 years, we can jump 30 years worth of progress, right? So I totally, because it's, it's logarithmic. Web three time, web three time. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> right, right. So uh, next six to 12 months, where do I see myself in web three? I think hopefully I see myself in 186 backing the next generational companies uh, that are building missing pieces of infrastructure that make asset custody more compliant and more secure that make payment processing possible uh, in many ways that make developer technologies more useful uh, and make things more cost effective. And where do I hope Web3 goes? Kind of aligned with that. I really hope whether or not we back these companies, I sure hope we do. But regardless of whether or not we back them, hopefully we have a, a more useful, coherent system of, of chains and protocols that resemble a lot of the traditional financial world because it works that way. It's going to set us up for scale. Things need to be more modular, uh, among other things. So I think, you know, that means a lot more building where we go, 
in terms of speculation. I don't know. I think that as much as people want to say that things aren't really that connected to the you know traditional finance, the financial markets, they are. So just look at, you know, I like to say, look at two things. One, look at where the public markets are going. Regardless of your beliefs, they are tied to what will end up influencing and informing how much money is poured into, let's say, the Bitcoins and ETHs of the world. And then also look at the regular um, regulatory motion, right? How quickly are we regulating things? The faster we regulate things when it comes to stable coins, whatever else, DAOs and so on, the faster we're going to recover, right? So I hope that we are in a much more regulated environment in six to 12 months, but that no one has a crystal ball for that. No, now, I hope ten, so too. <laughs> yeah, I, hope, I hope so. Five to 10 years from now. Um, and this is one in one with where I hope we are within web three. I hope we are backing. It's going to be the same answer where I hope web, the web three economy is at. I hope we're backing businesses that have proven to become their own banks embedded infrastructure that enables any institution to behave and function like a bank. And we don't have enough time to go through the second and third order degree of consequences of that, but it solves a lot of the problems like related to small business banking, lending, and so on. So I hope that we are in a, I hope we back those companies, but I hope that um, the Web3 ecosystem has those. I hope that the Web3 tech stack and ecosystem is at a point where it will have enabled many non-banking institutions of today to act as their own custodians, to be able to just do a lot of things that are only reserved for banks that have banking charters today. And if we can achieve that in five to 10 years, things are looking really good. Um, we'll see though. We'll see. I don't think we achieve that within five, 10 maybe. Within five, that's tough because a lot of infrastructure needs to be built first. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that answer. And I love the fact that you left a door open for part two at some point. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, did, I did that on purpose. I did that on purpose. <laughs> well, cool, Giuseppe. I really appreciate you coming on today. I want you to uh, let the audience know how can they get in touch with you if they want to learn more about 186 or yourself? Sure. Thank you. I, uh, I would say DM me on Twitter at gstudo, G-S- T-U-T-O. And if nothing else, he has a really fun name to say, Giuseppe Stuto. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this has been awesome, man. Thanks, Giuseppe. Thanks, Zach. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate the time and you have. Thanks for joining Web3 with me. Make sure to follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review as it'll help us reach more people. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at offedge underscore. Thanks for vibing in the verse with me and hope you'll join us next time.